0: So we've been exploring uh, this practice of satipatthana, the establishments or foundations of mindfulness. And uh, I'd like to continue the progression this evening by talking about the third foundation of mindfulness. <clears throat> so these these four areas uh, that the Buddha pointed out um, can be understood as as four sort of areas of human experience that are the most useful, the most conducive to establishing mindfulness, cultivating it, and and applying it. And some of the other translations of satipatthana that Heather spoke of are also frames of reference or establishments, foundations, depending on how the Pali is interpreted. And uh, one of the ways I like to look at it is it's a template. It's a template that can encompass all of our human experience, one among many in the Buddhist teachings, the five aggregates, the six sense doors. All of these are various ways of understanding a human being, this experience that we have of having a mind, a body, a heart that feels. And so we've explored... The first two foundations, the foundation of the body this physical form and how it can be used as a ground for our awareness, for embodied presence. And each of these foundations is a powerful vehicle in and of itself, and they can all work together in this teaching as a direct path to liberation, to awakening with mindfulness of the body, you know it's said that the Buddha used mindfulness of breathing as his primary practice all the way up through his awakening. so that that's a complete practice in and of itself. And it's said in the suttas in certain places that one touches the deathless with the body. The powerful statement. So this incredible gift we each have to establish and cultivate mindfulness in the body. And as Donald spoke of last night so beautifully, this uh, capacity that we have for feeling pleasant, unpleasant, the whole range and everything in between, and how when we establish mindfulness in this arena, it's this um, fulcrum or this um, juncture in the chain of our experience where we can actually uh, break the reactivity from a feeling to craving and aversion and delusion the third foundation is what's called chitta sometimes translated as mind I'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment but it includes the rest of our experience our thoughts our emotions our moods states of mind so, in a certain sense, it completes the template of human experience in the four foundations. And then the fourth are certain aspects of experience that we can look at, which we'll be discussing further on in the retreat. So, I want to offer some definitions. Um, I want to look at what's included in this third foundation, how we practice with it generally, uh and then time-permitting one common area within the third foundation that trips us up. So the, the term in Pali for this third foundation is chitta nupassana I want to say a little bit about both of those. This nupassana, which shows up in each of the foundations, the first foundation is kaya-nupassana, the second is vedana-nupassana. This nupassana is a interesting and, for me, wonderful word. It's related to the same root as vipassana, passati, which means to see or to observe. And the prefix anu is an emphatic. It means like really, like really see. So, so the translation in English is contemplation, to look at repeatedly, to see again and again or to observe closely. So the contemplation of the body Contemplation of feelings, contemplation of citta, to see again and again. And there's what's being seen, and then there's how we're seeing. The particular features that we're observing and how we're looking. So this is the nupassana part. And citta is an interesting term. When we look at the history of philosophy in the world, different uh, traditions and schools have ways of dividing up a human being and this the common split in western uh, philosophy either between the, the body and the mind or the um, reason and passion and in the asian traditions the the heart and the mind aren't split as many of you know the word in chinese and japanese and also in sanskrit and ancient pali it, for the heart and mind is the same. And in Pali, it's citta. So it's not just mind as in mental. It includes the heart. It includes the emotions. It's the seat of our emotions. It's and the faculty of perception and cognition. There's a very uh, funny story of one of these conferences um, early on between neuroscientists and uh, Tibetan monastics looking at the mind. And one of the main neuroscientists, I don't know who it was, uh, had a subject up on the stage with all of these electrodes for an fMRI attached to the brain, to the head, and was explaining how the machine was able to measure the activity in the brain and how we could you know, begin to observe and see what's actually happening from a scientific perspective in the mind during deep states of meditation. And all of the Tibetans, sort of this sort of murmur goes, some of you know the story, this murmur goes through the audience and sort of confusion and chuckling. And one of the Tibetan monks raises his hand and, and says, why are the electrodes on their head? It's, that's not where the mind is. You're measuring the wrong part. The mind is here. And points to his chest, the center of the heart. So in the Asian philosophy, the seat of consciousness in the mind is here. Not here. Another translation of chitta this is not a um, traditional translation, but one that my teacher uses sometimes that I like is, a, is the psyche, which gets at some of the, the depth of what it contains, not just personal but transpersonal, interpersonal, the whole history, all of the formations and feelings and impressions that we carry in our heart mind, in our chitta. The first line of the Dhammapada, one of the most famous texts of the Buddhist tradition and one of the most translated texts in the world, is uh, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief, they are mind-made. And in that I think there's a deep wisdom, a deep understanding of the the power of the human heart-mind as the origin of all of our action, our creativity, our harm. And, you know, one just can contemplate through history all of the the greatness, the triumph of the human being and human spirit, and then the full range of the tragedy and the horror and depravity that we're capable of, and all of it originating in the mind, in the heart. Now I think about the the ancient poetry of Rumi or Hafiz all the way up to the present time of poets like Pablo Neruda or Mary Oliver. You know, the beauty, the uh, exquisiteness of what can be done with language or music. You like classical music or... I I got really into jazz in college. I took some jazz classes and listened to Duke Ellington or Miles Davis or... Charlie Parker Nina Simone or Ella Fitzgerald and just what can be done with the human heart mind and body uh, you know operating together this is this is from bird from Charlie Parker he, he said music is your own experience your thoughts your wisdom if you don't live it it won't come out of your horn so you know in that for me there's this understanding that even something you know as embodied as music—it's—it's it's the mind, it's the heart, also. It's what we live—that's connected to it. Or you look at the fulfillment of the potential of a human being and the—you know—the figures of history that we've been blessed to know and have, people like Dr. King, which Donald spoke of earlier, or Nelson Mandela, or people today like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. Or Malala Yusavsi's young Pakistani activist for women's education, who was almost killed in an assassination attempt and continued to speak out the strength of the human heart and mind, what can be accomplished. It begins in the mind. One of the um, great uh, monastics and spiritual elders of the Theravada tradition from Cambodia, Mahagosananda, Uh, there's a story of him attending uh, some protests in Washington, D.C. against the use of landmines in war. In Cambodia during the Civil War, many, many landmines were planted, and years, years after the war were still ravaging the countryside, people just walking and getting blown, you know, limbs blown off. And he's quoted as having said at this protest the landmines and the anti personnel mines in the ground began in our hearts. If you want to remove the landmines and the anti personnel mines in the ground, we must first learn to remove the landmines in our hearts. So, this is Chittanupasana. This is the contemplation of the heart mind of understanding the forces that operate within our hearts and mind. And the beginning of the third foundation, what the Buddha points to, he says, to know when the mind is affected by lust or greed and when lust or greed is absent. To know when the mind is affected by hatred and when it's absent. And to know when the mind is affected by delusion and when it's absent. And as we know, these are the three Roots of the all- unwholesome action are the three poisons, so to speak, of the heart mind. And we've seen through history how when the mind and heart are colored by these forces of confusion and greed and hatred, what can happen? How other human beings, we lose the sense of humanity the process of becoming an other, something different from ourselves, something lesser than, through a certain perception or an idea that the mind latches on to through confusion, through aversion, and then creates a belief around it that then justifies all kinds of actions. I am... read this book a few years ago. Some of you probably know, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It is a chronicle of the last decades in the 1800s into the early 1900s of the genocide, the attempted genocide of the First Nation people in this country. And it's a devastating book, really, really, very, very powerful. And I just wanted to read one passage about... Um, spotted tail who was a chief of the brule Sioux in what's now Missouri after the Civil War when the settlers um, started really streaming into the West the generals at various forts were trying to make more treaties with the chiefs and calling them in to the uh, to the forts and uh, he was one of the chiefs who was working for peace and uh, he he came in with his daughter uh, Fleetfoot who was sick hoping that the the white doctors would be able to make her well. And she died en route. And as they arrived at the fort, she was born on um, a a, a pallet, a stretcher. And uh, the the soldiers at the fort were very uh, respectful and, you know, saluted them and honored them when they came in. And So the colonel invited Spotted Tail into his headquarters and offered sympathy for the loss of his daughter. The chief said that in the days when the white men and the Indians were at peace, he had brought his daughter to Fort Laramie many times, that she loved the fort, and he would like to have her burial scaffold mounted in the post cemetery. The colonel immediately granted permission. He was surprised to see tears well up in Spotted Tail's eyes. He did not know that an Indian could weep. This is what happens when we, when we see a human being as something other than us, when a perception and confusion color the mind and then justify what can be done based on greed. And we see it again and again through history, right? <clears throat> human beings become property, become objects for uh, satisfying sexual desire, and the earth becomes an object, right? To satisfy our needs, we lose the sense of connection, of relatedness with the very uh, environment and, and mother that's given birth to all of all of life. Some some beings become less than, and other beings become more, become more than. Which is the other side of this—the privilege that goes unseen. How some beings can believe unconsciously, that they are more than, or others are seen as greater than. And then the tragedy of this, we do this to ourselves, how we become objects to ourselves, where certain parts of ourselves become lesser than, or not acceptable, that we then compartmentalize or judge, feel afraid of. And this whole process happening in the heart-mind So this is this is the this is the um, the next sort of frontier of our mindfulness from the body, feeling tones to the heart, mind, and all of the forces and the emotions and the thoughts and the perceptions that, that arise within it and that color our actions in ourselves and our relationships and our society and our world. So what's included in this? What does it cover? Nupasana, mindfulness of the mind. As I said, the first three point to the roots of wholesome and unwholesome action. And the way it's framed is very interesting. In this whole foundation, it's framed as knowing the absence and the presence of these factors. So knowing the mind affected by lust and a mind unaffected by lust. A mind affected by hatred and a mind unaffected by hatred. So many of us who practice Dhamma, we know when we're angry. We know when anger is present. How mindful are we when when anger is not present? Are we aware when the defilements are not present? So one of the delusions that we fall into is either only noticing the negative things, only noticing the aspects of ourself and our mind that um, are deplorable or that cause harm, and then that creates one view of ourself or the other side of only noticing the positive things, only noticing their absence. And the teaching here is the middle path is to notice both. Notice when they're present, notice when they're absent. And giving attention to the quality of the mind when it is not affected by greed or hatred or delusion. And this, is, this is a very uh, essential part of the practice. The defin- one of the definitions of the goal of Nibbana is a mind free from greed, from hate, and from delusion. So why not be, start to become familiar with what is the quality of the mind when these are not present, or even when they're less present, you know? How, how is the mind when there's less confusion, when there's less greed, becoming familiar with its quality? The other aspects specifically named in the sutta are knowing when the mind is contracted or not contracted, knowing when it's distracted and knowing when it's not distracted. And I love this because it's not saying your mind should only be undistracted all the time. It recognizes sometimes the mind is distracted and says, be mindful of that. Not judge it, not judge yourself, not say it should be otherwise, but know it. Be mindful of it, yeah? So we can get into this state where we think the mind should always be one way. Well, that's not the teaching. That's not the practice. The practice is to meet whatever arises with awareness and to know it as it is. So to know the mind when it's tight and contracted and knotted and to know it when it's not contracted. To know distraction as distraction. To know non-distraction as non-distraction. Non-distraction. And then it gets really interesting. And the Buddha says, to know the exalted mind as an exalted mind, to know an unexalted mind as unexalted, the surpassed mind and the unsurpassed mind, to know a concentrated mind as concentrated, to know the unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated. You can be mindful of the lack of concentration oh the unconcentrated this is an unconcentrated mind that's what's happening awareness can still be present and then to know the liberated mind is liberated and the unliberated mind is unliberated we can be aware of anything this is the this is the gift this is the potential of this of this practice it has no limits we come to the realization there's nothing we can't be mindful of, that we can meet all experience with awareness. One of the yogis was speaking in an interview today about just this very natural um, ability to pause and see things clearly, to take time with them, to not react, and instead to be able to allow them to be felt, to be known, to have their life. And when we can do that, we start to see their nature. And we can allow things to simply arise and be known and held in awareness. Then they're released. One of the phrases that's an expression of the consummation of our practice, this phrase that's often translated as the sure heart's release, you've heard this, or the uh, unshakable deliverance of the mind. So this is the citta. The Pali is akupa chitta vimutti, akupa, unshakable, citta, from chitta vimutti, freedom or release. So it's the citta that's liberated. It's the awareness of the heart-mind that is released from the grip of confusion and attachment and aversion. There's a wonderful, famous... Um, story from Ajahn Chah, from one of his dharma talks. We've spoken of him, the Thai forest master, about the, the breadth of awareness, that anything can be known. Um, I'll read to you the, the full uh, quote from his dharma talks. Many of us have heard the abbreviated version. So he says, I'm telling you it's great fun to observe closely how the mind works. I see the mind merely as a single point." Mental states are like guests who come to visit this spot. Sometimes this person comes, sometimes that person. They come to visit the center. Train the mind to watch and know them all with eyes of alert awareness. This is how you care for your heart and mind. This is the Buddha's firm and unshakable awareness that watches over and protects the mind. You're sitting right here. Since the moment you emerged from the womb, every visitor that's ever come to call has arrived right here. No matter how often they come, they always come to this same spot right here. Knowing them all, the Buddha's awareness sits firm and unshakable. Simply know who the guests are as they arrive. Once they've dropped by, they will find that there's only one chair. And as long as you're occupying it, they will have nowhere to sit down. (laughs) Next time they come, there will also be no chair free. No matter how many times these chattering visitors show up, they'll always meet the same person sitting in the same spot. There's only one seat, and you're sitting in it. How long do you think they will continue to put up with this situation? (laughs) Everyone and everything you've ever known since you began to experience the world will come for a visit. Simply observing and being aware right here is enough to see the Dhamma entirely. So this is what's called taking the one seat with our awareness to know and observe all of the phenomena that arise in the mind. So how do we do this? How do we practice with this? And this is where the instructions of the Satipatthana really come in. There are three qualities that are enumerated in each of the foundations of the Satipatthana that are essential for being able to do this practice, and I wanted to take some time to go through them a little bit. The first is is an aspect of the heart, as what we would say in, in English, the heart, and it's the Pali is Atapi, which is often translated as ardor or zeal, and it has that um, that sense of sincerity the genuineness of our heart in practicing. My first teacher used to say, one must be wholehearted. It's being wholehearted in our practice. This is where the juice comes from in practice. Without atapi, it gets really dry. In the sense of connecting with our aspiration, our intention, and really doing it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Like if you're going to, if you play an instrument, and you're going to play your favorite piece, or if you like to paint, and you're going to paint a watercolor or an oil painting, and you, you bring all of your attention, all of your awareness, all of your heart, your mind, your body, to the task at hand. This is atapi, the sincerity of practice. The next quality we've been speaking about is sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness has aspects of remembering, Remembering to be present, bearing something in mind. One of the definitions of sati is the ability to sustain our attention on an object, to keep a certain frame of reference in mind, to keep coming back to it. My first teacher said, mindfulness means knowing what's happening. He used to say, dhamma is about experiencing, not thinking. So sati is experiencing what's happening. It's not thinking about it. It's dropping down below the neck and actually experiencing life. The metaphor I like to use is one of listening rather than watching. Watching separates. Listening enters. Listening is a part of. Mindfulness has an intimacy with experience. Coming close to it. Tasting it. Knowing it. So this is mindfulness. Mindfulness. And the last quality, which we've also mentioned, is sampajanya, which is a wisdom faculty. It's often translated as clear comprehension, sometimes full awareness. And it's the sense of understanding what's happening. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, breathing in, one understands, I breathe in. That's sampajanya, the understanding. Oh, this is what's happening. Experiencing a pleasant feeling, one knows. I experience a pleasant feeling. That's sampajanya, the recognition, the understanding. Oh, this is pleasant. It's a wisdom faculty. So we need both sati and wisdom. Sati, sampajanya working together. And in the third foundation, the mind affected by lust, one knows, oh, this is a mind affected by lust. There's that understanding, that wisdom present. So we use these qualities to stay in the one seat. The sense of atapi allows us to withstand all of the various you know forms and phantoms and dreams and images and stories that arise. Sati stays with it. Sampajanya understands it. So how do we, how do we um, apply this? To the realm of chitta of thoughts and emotions and mind states, <clears throat> one of the um useful uh, teachings on mindfulness that many of you, I'm sure have heard um, originated by one of our Vipassana teachers, Michelle MacDonald, is this acronym Rain, right? for mindfulness i won't go into detail since many of you have heard this before but it's a useful mnemonic for remembering well what does it actually mean to be mindful of something whether it's a sensation a feeling tone or an emotion so the r of rain is recognition and it's just that simple sense of knowing what's happening you know so you're standing in the lunch line and all of a sudden you recognize there's a lot of craving you know like can't wait to get to the food so it's just a recognition oh this is craving The A is for acceptance. It's one thing to recognize what's happening. It's another thing to accept it, to not be resisting it or judging it. But the acceptance, okay, this is what's happening. Can I meet this? Can I include this? The I is for interest. And this takes it another level to actually be interested in what's happening. So we can be aware of knee pain, some measure of accepting it. But can we actually be interested in it? To come close to it, to want to understand it, to see it clearly. The N is perhaps the most difficult. It's less of something you do and more of something that happens. Recognition, acceptance, interest are all things we can apply. The N is for non-identification. And this is an understanding that arises through practice. It's not so much something you can do. The non-identification means that we're not taking things personally, we're meeting experience on its own terms. So the refrain, one one of the structures that recurs in the satipatthana is one contemplates the body in the body, or one contemplates the body as a body. One contemplates feelings as feelings. One contemplates the citta as citta. So it's that sense of meeting experience on its own terms rather than from the perspective of a self. This is non-identification. To see craving is just craving. It's not a person. It's not me. It's just a force in the mind. Concentration is just concentration. It's just a particular configuration of mental factors that come together. This is concentration. This is the concentrated mind. This is the unconcentrated mind. Seeing it as it is, rather than through the lens of a self. So some of the areas that we practice with in the third foundation are thoughts, recognizing thoughts. And we can investigate, this is a very, very fruitful, powerful investigation, what is a thought? You know, think a thought deliberately. Think a thought slowly. Notice the space between the words, between the thoughts. Joseph Goldstein likes to speak about, you know, the power that thoughts have when unseen. How powerful a thought is when we don't actually see it and recognize it. And yet when we turn towards it and look at it, what is it? How it vanishes. It's just a phantom in the mind. Where is it, you know? My first teacher used to say, learn to see thought as thought. Learn to see thought as thought rather than as me or mine or true or false. It's just thought, just like sounds, just like the birds or the wind. The mind produces thoughts. Thought happens in awareness. We can be aware of thoughts. So this is one aspect of the third foundation. Another huge aspect is being, being mindful of our emotions. So in the Buddhist psychology, emotions are not singled out as a separate category of experience. They're included with many other mental factors. So the Western experience or concept we have of emotions gets uh, covered under the umbrella of chitta nupasana, of the the mental states and moods and emotions that move through the heart mind. And this is a full, you know, range of practice. It could be a whole Dharma talk in and of itself of how to work with emotions. I'll just say a few things. First just recognizing the power that emotions have in our life. You know, the power to make us suffer when we don't relate to them wisely, the power to... Um, cause us to inflict harm on ourselves and others when we act out of them, when, they're, when we're not able to be aware of emotions and to practice restraint and mindfulness with strong emotions and energies, how they come out of our words, our actions. This is a very, very powerful area to practice with, to learn to feel an emotion without acting or reacting on it. And we have the, the gift of this container in this time to practice with the emotions that arise every day and use it as a training ground to strengthen the capacity to withstand the pressure inside of our emotions and just see them as they are, to know anger is anger. Oh, this is anger. This is hatred, you know. This is confusion. The mind's confused right now. That's what this is, confusion or doubt. To see them as they are, these experiences. So naming emotions is a very important tool, just giving it a name. How unnamed it can really run the show. When we name it, we start to see it. When it's not named, it can start to color everything that's happening. It's like uh, maybe when you were younger, if you had a a wool sweater that was kind of itchy, and all day long you felt a little bit, like, irritated maybe. I I had that experience. because, And then I realized, like, oh, wait, it's because my shirt's itchy, you know? An emotion can be like that, or a turtleneck that's too tight. And all day long, you know, I might feel a little bit tense until I realize, oh, my shirt's just too tight. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we can have an emotion running in the background and not really know, and it's coloring everything until we turn towards it and recognize, oh, wait, just a little anxious, you know? Or there's some desire running. Another important aspect of practicing with emotions is understanding them as information. Emotions are telling us something about our organism, our mind, that there's something that matters to us. And so actually listening to them, giving them space to really sense okay, what's going on here? not to think discursively, but just to listen, just to create a space for anything that wants to be felt and known to arise in the heart. it's very fruitful to start to investigate emotions and see what, what are they, you know? So what is fear? And to break it down and to see, okay, well, there's certain images in the mind. There's certain thoughts or stories. There's a feeling tone. What's that? There are certain sensations in the body. So, emotions are this kind of, often this sort of whole configuration of various aspects of our experience. So, you give it a name, say, oh, okay, wait, this is anxiety. But then say, what is anxiety? How do I know I feel anxious? What would this experience be without the name anxiety? And start to actually contact it directly the thoughts, the images, the sensations, the feeling tones. And then it ceases to have so much power because we start to see how it's operating, what it is in essence. Sometimes facing an emotion directly can be very helpful. To really just look at it head on. If it's something we're afraid of, we keep trying to get away from it. And sometimes just turning towards it can shift things the last tool that's very very helpful with repetitive thoughts and emotions is dropping down below your neck Just experience it in the body often these repetitive thoughts and emotions are riding on a wave of energy in the body and until we actually feel that and address it we stay on the surface that's where it resolves is in the body so In citta we we notice the mind state, but then we include the first foundation, bringing it into the body and actually feeling it, sensing it, seeing how it's moving. With all of these mental and emotional phenomena that come through, as we practice them, we start to see their impermanence, how they come and they go in the heart-mind. We notice when they're here, and we notice when they're absent. We notice how they arise, they come to a certain peak, and then they dissolve and fade and vanish. And so as with each of the foundations of mindfulness, as we practice with it at the end of the um, section, the text says, we practice in all these ways, knowing the mind affected by this, not affected by this, when there's concentration, when there's not concentration, or one establishes mindfulness That there is a heart-mind, simply to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So just the the awareness that there is this heart-mind, that experiences come and pass through. And in some sense, you could say, you could look at that and say, okay, well, that's kind of the remedial practice. You just do it, so you're just aware of there's a heart-mind. But another way of looking at it is actually it's the consummation that when the awareness is steady and continuous enough that there you can that there can be a resting in the very knowing of the heart mind in a continuous way so then we start to be aware of all of the various shades of experience that move through the heart during the day you know certain uh, scene or um, uh, smell or sensation outside and all of a sudden there's joy that passes through you know or someone you have some kind of weird weird vibe with on the retreat and all of a sudden there's irritation you know some seeing and this irritation passes through and you feel a, a flush of heat through the body and a tightness and then it passes we start to see how the heart and the mind are affected by all of these states these expansive states these contracted states we just keep knowing what's arising meeting it with awareness a very powerful way to practice with this foundation is to track just what's what's the attitude in the mind what's the orientation here how is the mind relating to experience and this is about, in the Eightfold Path, about the second factor of right attitude or right intention. Seeing Are we oriented properly? So when you come down to sit or to walk in your walking path, just checking, is there a gaining idea? Right? Am, I, am I trying to get somewhere? How's that going to work out? <laughs> right? That's not right intention. That's not right attitude. The mind is colored by some greed. So seeing that right, right intention, the first factor of right intention is renunciation, not trying to get something. So one of the abbots at one of the monasteries I trained, one of his, his things was when he would sit, he would say, non-desire, non-anticipation, non-becoming, to counter that sense of trying to get something or get somewhere. So, seeing how the mind can be colored by that. The second and third factors of right intention are non ill will or kindness and non cruelty or compassion. And for me, this was a huge sort of realization in my practice at one point where I, I realized wait a minute, non ill will and non cruelty, that includes me how the mind can be colored by ill will towards ourselves, yeah? So what's the attitude in the mind that's coloring where we're coming from in the practice? This is very important to start to become aware of, especially in a long retreat like this. What's coloring the mind? Where are we coming from? Is there greed? Are we pushing? Is there some aversion? Are we beating ourselves up a little bit, saying we're not good enough? And this is one of the very common uh, phenomena, mental states that move through, particularly for Westerners, is this sense of not good enough, of self-judgment. I'm doing it wrong. I'm not getting it right. In some sense, a deep retreat like this is a little like open-heart surgery for the mind and, and the heart. You know, that we, we actually go very deep into the psyche and begin to uncover patterns that have been there under the surface for a long time. And we start to see how they're operating and coloring everything we do. And so it can be, um, it can be overwhelming at times to start to see how persistent these judgments or patterns are in the heart and the mind. I had a very um, powerful experience with this on my first three-month retreat at IMS. I was, I was doing walking meditation and uh, I'd be very, very diligent, walking very, very, you know, the mindfulness was very strong, walking very slowly, each step and the grass, and the bell for the sitting rang. And I, you know, I said, in, inside I just listened, and the body just wanted to keep walking. You know, continuity was strong, so I just kept walking, walking one step at one step. And then at a certain point, I noticed with each step at the end of the placing, there was this little voice, this very, just an just a echo, just a shade in the mind of not good enough, not quite good enough, just a little more mindful, not good enough. And my heart just broke open. I just felt the years of pushing myself to just, just, just do it a little bit better, just not quite good enough. And so sometimes some of these patterns, when we see the suffering inherent in them, it can break the heart open. There are many, many ways to work with these these particular patterns and forces in the mind. The two primary tools um, that my friend here, Donald, likes to to talk about in working with judgments, which is one of the main things he teaches on sometimes, are talking about kindness, metta, and investigation. And kindness comes in many forms. So sometimes this includes the body and the importance of touch. You know, being able to place a gentle hand on the body, remembering what it feels like to receive a hug. Or to have your hand held. And there's kindness there. So when there's self judgments, being able to come back to the kindness of the contact, the touch in the body. Another aspect of kindness is, is this uh, incredible environment that we live in, out of which we've come, You know that holds us. Being able to receive the kindness of the earth, of the air just breathing in and breathing out, receiving the kindness of the trees, receiving their teaching. You, know, you look at a tree, it's not judging you. Trees don't, trees don't say to one another, what did you do today? You know? <laughs> Show me what you produced. <laughs> You're know? you working for your water. Are you working for your sun? <laughs> you see how crazy it is that we judge ourselves in these ways. Really allowing life to touch us can start to heal the sense of isolation and alienation we feel. Being able to trust that we matter just by being alive. Because we're connected to the planet, that we matter. This word matter, mother, matter, earth, matter, that we matter, we are matter. Inherently, innately, without needing to do anything, be anything become, perform, achieve. And we've emerged from this earth. We're part of it intimately. This is from uh, another Thai forest master, Ajahn Buddhadasa. If I can find it. He said, this is from uh, Jack's, Jack Cornfield's introduction to a very famous book, The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. He says, Ajahn Buddhadasa spoke of the healing power of the trees and the walkways of Swanmokh Monastery. When I asked him how so many Westerners who begin the spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain and self-hatred can best approach practice, he replied with two simple suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice would be enveloped by the principles of metta, of loving-kindness. Then... They should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of things. Kindness comes in many forms. We can receive kindness from one another. Many of these wounds of self-hatred and judgment have arisen in relationship and can be healed in relationship. So receiving different information, different responses, when we make a mistake, how others relate to us. I was practicing at a small zendo in Japan, and um, I had a certain role in in the retreat, and I was the one who was supposed to blow out the candles. And in the Zen tradition, you're not supposed to blow out a candle with your breath you're supposed to use your hand and you cup your hand in the special way and make a quick burst. It blows out the candle and and try it sometime. It's not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) In particular, you've got one of those big candles on an altar. So this altar, there was this beautiful wood carving of Manjusri, Bodhisattva of wisdom, riding on a lion with his sword and these two big white candles. And so the end of one sitting at sitting there trying trying to blow out the candle and it's not going out and it's not going out and finally i one big thing and i hit the candle and the wax went splattering all over the altar and the statue and the floor and the zendo and i felt i was like oh no i felt awful so i went to the the head monk who we called hojo san it was just a title i happened upon him in the hallway and i went up to him and i you know lowered myself and put my hands in prayer because i said hojo san i have something to tell you (laughs) i was trying to blow out the candles at the altar and i hit the candle and the wax splattered all over the statue and the altar with no reaction perfect equanimity he just listened his face was totally calm and He looked at me and he said, oh, that's okay. We all make mistakes sometimes. (laughs) It's very easy to clean. Come, I'll show you how. (laughs) Right? So getting different information, like, (laughs) how do we respond to ourselves that way? You know, can we? Learning to be our own best friend, we take that response and we offer it to ourselves. Learning that we can be a friend to ourselves in that way. And then the tools of investigation, as I talked about before, really looking at what is this? Seeing it clearly, seeing the thoughts as thoughts, seeing the emotions as emotions, seeing through the trance of the self-judgment as something that's true, that's about me, And seeing it as it is with wisdom and then it evaporates. It's not not something we need to actually worry about. It's just a passing show. I'd like to close with a story that brings these two things together. The sense of the power of staying in the one seat, of observing and knowing everything that arises in the mind and the heart and the self-sense of kindness and compassion for ourselves this is from a small book called the last breath by ajan passano which was written about an inmate in san quentin a thai man who was convicted for two murders and sentenced to death and he admitted to having committed these robberies but he refused he, he said he didn't murder anyone he didn't kill anyone but he refused to name the accomplice the other person out of a sense of honor uh, culturally, and so he was sentenced to death. And um, sixth, he had been a monastic in Thailand, uh, you know, earlier in his life, which is a, a practice there culturally. And um, in prison, he he drew upon the meditation training he had had, and uh, he practiced continuously when he was in prison. And six days, his name was Jaturun Siripongs, and he was known as Jay. And six days before he was to be executed, a friend of his contacted a Bayagiri monastery here north of Ukiah and um, asked Ajahn Pasano, who was the abbot there, to come down as a spiritual advisor. And uh, he got clearance to come to San Quentin, and he spent three days with J. Siripongs before he died. And there were many reports of, just through his practice in the prison, the transformation he went through. And the guards and the inmates recognized that he lived peacefully in the prison. And several of the guards actually supported the clemency appeal for, for him quite openly. And even the former warden supported a plea for the commutation of his sentence, um, which were not granted. And he was he was executed. But in those last days, Ajahn Pasana was with him. And this is from, from those days. He writes, at one point, Jay said, If I am not the body, not the feelings, and not the mind, then what is it that's liberated? I told him that such a question appearing then in his mind was simply doubt arising. When you let go of everything and experience the peace and clarity inherent in that, You don't have to put a name or an identity on it. This moved me quite deeply when I read it. It There's just that sense of death being so imminent, being in the practice, and this question arising, if I'm not the body, I'm not the feelings, not the mind, you see the three foundations there, yeah? Then what is it that's liberated? And what was Ajahn Pasano's response? He says, the arising, the, such a question appearing in your mind was simply doubt arising. Stay in the one seat and see the phenomena simply arising. And then at a certain point in their, in their dialogue, in their time going through everything that had happened and Jay's mental state and his heart, Ajahn Pasano asked him, is there anybody you have not forgiven yet? there was a long pause. And then Jay said, he said softly at last, I haven't forgiven myself completely. So my wish for you is that in this time and in these days, that your awareness grow strong and steady to meet whatever arises in the heart and mind. And that you you carry that forward with this sense of tenderness in the heart. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.